The title in an article in Wired magazine a week before last read, Doom Scrolling is Slowly Eroding Your Mental Health. A new word for you and I, doom scrolling. The subtitle went on and said, checking your phone for an extra two hours every night won't stop the apocalypse, but it could stop you from being psychologically prepared for it. The, the article goes on and it says, ever since the COVID-19 pandemic left, a great many, er, ever since the COVID-19 pandemic left a great many people locked down in their homes in early March, the evening ritual has been codifying. Each night ends the way the day began with an endless scroll through social media in a desperate search for clarity. And as protests over racial injustice and police brutality following the death of George Floyd have joined the COVID-19 crisis in the news cycle, it's only gotten more intense. The constant stream of news and social media never ends. Right now, it says, people are living at a time with no easy solutions, a moment with a lot of conflicting facts in a rapidly changing landscape. According to Nicole Ellison, who studies communication and social media at the University of Michigan School of Information, that means there is, quote, a lot of demand on cognitive reasoning to make sense of this. There's no overarching narrative that helps us. That, she adds, only compounds the stress and anxiety people are already feeling. Many people are in an almost continual mode of fight or flight right now. Add to that the isolation that many are living in through the stay-at-home orders, and you have a recipe for some real crazy-making in people's heads. Are we living in the last days? Are we rapidly approaching the end of the world as we know it? Are we nearing the apocalypse? Is the second coming of Jesus Christ imminent? How should we live in these times? How should we prepare ourselves for the second coming of Jesus? Well, these are some of the things that we'll be talking about today in our Bible study as we continue to work our way through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, you can turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be picking up in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. There was some confusion among the believers in the Thessalonian church about what Paul had taught them about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It seems that some thought Paul had told them that all believers would still be alive when the second coming of Jesus took place. But since then, some of the believers had died and the second coming had not yet happened. So they were wondering, what would happen now to those believers who had died? Were they saved? Would they be resurrected? Was there some advantage to being alive at the time of the second coming, which those who had died are going to miss out on? Were those who had died second-class Christians in some way? Because some had died before the second coming, it was causing some of the believers to even question the whole truthfulness of everything that Paul had told them. If Paul was wrong about this, I mean, what else was he wrong about? Well, with the advantage of hindsight, some of these concerns may seem a bit silly to us, 
but they were serious issues that needed to be cleared up. This situation, it serves to illustrate, too, how important it is to be a careful listener. Not hearing correctly what is said can cause us to get pretty far off track. If you are married, I'm sure that you have witnessed this firsthand. You say something, and you are certain that you were very clear about what you said, but your spouse didn't hear the words that you said. I mean, they heard something completely different. In fact, what they heard was so different from what you had said that you kind of wonder if the two of you were even in the same conversation. Well, Paul is seeking to clarify and expand upon what he had taught them previously when he was in Thessalonica. So in verse 13, he writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who slept. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul refers to a believer's death as sleep. For the believer, death is not the end, and the metaphor of sleep helps get that idea across. A quick clarification on this, though, that I want to make is it is our body that is metaphorically sleeping, waiting to be awoken again at the resurrection. At death, we are immediately with the Lord. The doctrine of soul sleep, as taught by groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, is not biblical, and that is not what's being talked about here. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, he says. Now, Paul is not saying that Christians should not grieve the death of loved ones. Grieving is a normal human response. We have examples of that in the Bible even. Jesus himself wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. David mourned the loss of his friend Jonathan. Abraham mourned the death of his wife Sarah. Many of you have grieved the loss of loved ones. Death is heartbreaking. It can be devastating. In fact, the death of a loved one is one of the most difficult challenges that we will ever face in this life. But for a believer... Losing a loved one who is a believer is not the same as death for an unbeliever. The inescapable reality and finality of death is not that anymore. We have hope that reaches beyond the grave. Death marks the end of our physical life in this realm that we're living in, but it's not the end of our greater life, nor even the end of our physical existence. There's going to be a resurrection I've attended and performed many funerals over the years for both believers and unbelievers. There is a radical difference in the whole atmosphere. The funeral for the unbeliever has a sickening hopelessness about it. And in contrast, the funeral for a believer is filled with hope. There's sadness and heartbreak for our loss, but there's also a celebration for our loved one knowing where they are at now. Verse 14 says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead on the third day, and we believe we too will be resurrected from the dead, receiving a new resurrection body like his. When Jesus comes back, it says he will bring with him all the believers who have died. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are living, 
who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Those who've died before the second coming of Jesus will be resurrected before those who are still alive at the second coming, it tells us. So to answer some of the questions that the Thessalonian believers had, believers who die before the second coming of Jesus are not going to miss out on anything. They are not second-class Christians in some way. In fact, they are the first up. All believers have reason to rejoice in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We will, be re- we will be united with Jesus and receive new resurrection bodies free of disease and decay and death. Us, no matter if we're alive or dead at his second coming. What Paul is describing here is what is commonly referred to as the rapture. The Lord announcing his coming with a loud command and a great resurrection taking place of all of the believers who have died and then all of the believers who are alive at that time and then we are all together with the Lord. The Latin word for caught up is rapturo, which is where we get this word rapture. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The primary purpose of this passage, verses 13 through 17, is not to give a detailed chronology of future events, but to encourage us. Even in the face of death, we have hope in Christ. One commentator writes, the loss of our loved one remains a reality, but it is a temporary reality. The grief is real, but it is no longer grief without hope. The harsh reality of separation is joined by the joyous promise of reunion as the fact of death is transformed by the promise of life eternal. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, he said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this passage that we have just looked at, it presents the joyful hope that believers have, even in the face of death, of the resurrection at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This next passage that we're going to look at, the first 11 verses of chapter 5, is a solemn warning about the second coming of Jesus. He begins in the first verse. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. People love to speculate about when the second coming of Jesus will happen, when the end of the world as we know it will occur. I remember reading the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey back when I was in high school in the late 1970s. And for those of you who are startled by that, there was indeed people alive in 1970s. I was not a Christian at that time, but I was fascinated with how the author of the book lined up current events with various prophecies in the Bible and made the amazing prediction that Jesus Christ was going to be coming back within just the next few years. There have been groups of people over the centuries who have taken their predictions about when the end of the world will come a little too far, selling their possessions, moving to some remote location, and then to wait for the end to come. There's always someone who is claiming to have finally unlocked the mysteries of the Bible prophecies and discovered when the second coming of Jesus is going to be. There has been a lot of money made on books and films and TV shows that seek to align current events with prophecies in the Bible. There is little doubt this will continue to be a popular topic until Jesus comes back. It doesn't take a lot of imagination in the days we're living in right now to think that the end of the world might very well be on the horizon. The global pandemic, the riots, the strange weather, the worldwide geologic events, the international unrest, the murder hornets, the giant dust clouds, the pervasive anger and mistrust in our society. If you are a person who enjoys digging into how current events may match up with Bible prophecy and you enjoy chasing the theories and the speculations that prognosticators make about these things, I just want to say, you know, knock yourself out. That's fine. Go for it. Please, though, devote more of your time to learning about Jesus and the pursuit of godliness than you do studying those theories and speculations. Never forget that these are just that, theories and speculations. They don't have the same importance and weight as Scripture. Be respectful and kind toward people who don't share your opinion about those things. Our unity in the body of Christ overrules all of those theories and speculations and ideas. And then one more time, I want to say, keep the main thing the main thing, meaning growing in your knowledge about Jesus and becoming more like him in character is the main thing. We're told very clearly in these verses before us that no one knows when the second coming of Jesus will be. It says is here in verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, meaning it will come unexpectedly. Jesus taught the same idea in Matthew 24, 43, when he said, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, 
he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. While people are saying peace and safety is not a prediction about the conditions of the time when Jesus will be coming back, it's not saying that it will be a time of general calm and happiness. Instead, it's a description of the attitude of people. There will be self-deception, self-assurance, arrogance, preoccupation with self, lack of concern for the things of God. Paul amplifies on this idea in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. In his letter to Timothy, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. This description that he gives certainly can be applied to every age. And that's part of the point that he's making here too. But he says destruction will come on them suddenly. In other words, it will come without warning. Jesus taught the same idea again in Matthew 24, 36. He said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He says, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. Like a woman in labor. Once it starts, there's no stopping it. So with the coming of the day of the Lord... There will be no stopping it. There will be no second chances at that point. No more opportunities for preparation. There will be no escape. Verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love. Paul uses several metaphors to describe unbelievers and believers in verses 4 through 7 here. Uh, in the light of the second coming of Jesus, we have unbelievers are in darkness, he says, they will be surprised by the coming of the Lord like a thief in the night. Believers, on the other hand, are not in darkness. They will not be surprised by the coming of the Lord. They know what is coming. Unbelievers belong to the night. They can't see what's coming. They live their lives apart from the light of God's truth. Believers, on the other hand, are children of the light, children of the day. 
Unbelievers are asleep and drunk. Paul is not saying that unbelievers are literally drunk, though obviously some probably are. He's using this as a figure of speech, a metaphor as something that was done at night rather than done during the day, and that one who is drunk is unaware and in a stupor of sorts about the situation of their soul. In contrast, believers are awake and sober. Verse 8, he continues this and he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Verse 8, Paul exhorts believers to live like we really are children of the light, children of the day, that we really are awake and sober. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He gave a similar exhortation in his letter to the Romans in Romans 13, 11. He says, do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul uses the armor of the Roman soldier several times in his writings. He doesn't always use it in the same way, though. The way he's using it here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is not exactly the way he uses it in Ephesians 6, for example. In this particular instance, it's best for us to focus on the virtues that he mentions here, faith, hope, and love, rather than the particular pieces of armor. It was with these three that Paul had opened his letter to the Thessalonians back in the first chapter in the third verse. You might remember he said, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is urging us, as he did in 1 Thessalonians 4.1 and 4.10, which we looked at last time, to do this more and more. Keep growing in your faith and your life as a follower of Jesus, seeking to live a life that is pleasing to God, holy and honorable. In verse 9 and 10, the Lord's intention for us, His purpose for us, His destiny for us is salvation rather than wrath. And that salvation, it comes to us through Jesus Christ who died for us. Verse 10, he says, Whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Paul's use of the metaphors awake and asleep in this verse can create a bit of confusion if we don't read this whole passage very carefully. See, Paul, he's not using these metaphors in the same way that he used them in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 5. Instead, he's using them in the same way that he did in the passage just before that that we looked at the beginning today in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So in other words, he's not saying 
whether we are prepared for the second coming of Jesus or not, we will live together with him. He's saying whether we are alive or dead on the day Jesus comes back, we will live together with him. He's bringing us back to the main idea that he was talking about in that first passage we looked at in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. It doesn't matter if we die before Jesus comes back or we're alive when he comes back. Either way, we're going to receive salvation, be resurrected, receive a new body, live forever, live forever with Jesus and one another. Now, an important idea before we move on to the next verse. A person's preparedness, readiness, alertness, soberness, awakeness about the second coming of Jesus doesn't come from knowing the signs of the times. It comes in knowing Jesus Christ, in having received salvation, in being born of the Spirit of God, of having the new life of Christ in us. You see, if you want to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, then you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and follow Him. There's no other way to be prepared for the day of the Lord. You can be an expert in every idea throughout church history about the second coming of Jesus and be on top of every crazy harebrained conspiracy theory floating around the internet. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and following Him with your life, then you are in a very dangerous place. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night for you. As a woman in labor, suddenly, unexpectedly, relentlessly, and there will be no escape. Finally, verse 11 he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other just as, in fact, you are doing. The main purpose in us reflecting on the second coming of Jesus, reminding ourselves that the day of the Lord is coming, that he's coming back, that there will be an end to the world in its present condition, that a day of rescue and reckoning is coming, that Jesus is on his way to resurrect us is to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us in our life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul, he's told us that twice now. He told us to encourage one another in this way in verse 18 of chapter 4 and now again in verse 11 of chapter 5. So in closing today, referring back to the article that I read a portion of at the beginning on doom scrolling. It said people are in a desperate search for clarity and that they have no overarching narrative that helps them in life. You, Christian, have been given clarity. You know what's coming. You know that as crazy as this world looks, it's never out of the control of the Lord, and he is coming back. You, Christian, have an overarching narrative for your life, which anchors you through all of the chaos. 
Jesus is coming back for you. He is on his way. Jesus has left us with his promise. In John 14, 2, he said, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm coming back or that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So Maranatha, come Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for these words of Paul from the letter of 1 Thessalonians that remind us that you, Jesus, are coming back. I pray that you would fill your people with hope today about the resurrection, that Jesus is coming to resurrect, to give us new life, new bodies, to live forever with you, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us in the midst of all of the craziness around us, that we're not orphans, that we're not forget, forgotten, that we are not alone, that you love us and that you are coming to get us. In Jesus' name, amen.